0: Well, uh, some of you perhaps were like me this morning and said, oh, hi, Winter. (laughs) I almost forgot you were there. (laughs) Oh, thanks for joining us for worship this morning. We're on part five of our study on purpose, and uh, this is our final week. Message and then there's our small group, our life group studies to follow. And um, if you don't if you don't have a book yet, if you're new to our community, there are still a few left in the foyer, and you can pick them up if you want to kind of go through it on your own or see where we're going. So you're welcome to grab one of those. Call and response. It's a musical term, a musical technique. Um, that we hear in music. We actually use it lots in, in songs that we've sung. You probably grew up singing camp songs or sporting chants that had this call and response uh, feature to it. Now, cultural anthropologists, those who study cultures and trends in cultures, they point to this uh, call and response sort of form in music uh, to Western Africa Uh, which became popularized in the Western world through African-American spirituals, through work songs. Uh, You hear it in blues and in jazz music all the time, and in gospel songs. And uh, here's a great example just for a short clip for you to watch here. All right, you guys, take your cue from me. La, 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 la. I know you wanted to listen to the rest of the song, I did too, but you get me, you're welcome. (laughs) Call, oh happy day, response. There you go, yeah, I knew you'd do it, this is awesome. Call and response. Our whole series, On Purpose, has really been about God's call. And what's our response? The text we're going to look at this morning, it's all about the call, and what our response needs to be. Turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians 4. We're going to start at verse 1 and work through to verse 16, and I invite you to listen closely for call and response language here. Verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord. Stop. Paul is literally a prisoner at this point. He's in jail. He's writing this from prison because of his commitment and allegiance to Jesus. He worships Jesus as Lord, not Caesar. He's in jail in some sense as almost a political prisoner for that bold move. Jesus is king is what he's saying. But he's he's a prisoner in in a different kind of way too, a beautiful sense, I think. He's saying that he is captivated by the one who loves him. And gave his life for him. Give him new life. As a prisoner of the Lord then, Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. What does that look like? Well, in fact, the rest of the book of Ephesians is all about explaining that. Live a life worthy of your calling. Rest of the book, explanation. What does it look like? And it begins by being fleshed out right here. Verse 2. Be completely humble, and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And just notice, it's the Holy Spirit that gives believers unity, that draws us together. We don't create. Our unity, we never would because we're sinful, broken people. And on our own terms, uh, we wouldn't fuse into the kind of community God is calling us to. That's the Holy Spirit's work, but we have a role to play. Here's our response. Make every effort to maintain it. And to do that, we'll call for gentleness, humility, and patience. In fact, it will call with bearing with each other too. Could be translated, tolerate each other's failures. Work with those who are different than you. And then Paul grounds this unity, not in our common interest or our, you know, our views on important topics, but on the unity and diversity that we see in the life of the triune God himself. Just notice how Paul speaks in, in the, in Trinitarian language here. There is one body speaking about the body of Christ, God's people and one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Just as you were called the one hope, that is the hope of the gospel, when you were called. One Lord, and and Paul uses Lord mostly to refer to Jesus himself. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now before we move on, let's just pause on this first part of the text. What does it mean to be called and to be shaped by God? The first three uh Chapters of Ephesians, if you, if you, if you read them through, they don't have any commands. There are no imperatives. There's nothing that you're told to do because Paul just wants us to look at the grandness of what God has already done for us. And then starting in chapter four, what's our response? That's what we're getting into here. God adopts us as his very own children when we put our trust in Jesus and what he has accomplished, his offer of sheer grace to us. But there are implications. What does it mean to now live out who we are as God's children? How do we walk that into real life? Call and response. God's call and our response. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. That's a good translation. Uh, as I was reading this text in, in the Greek text, that's what it was written in, I noticed a few key features. And, and so here's my wooden translation. It might be, just kind of drew a few things out for me. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which, w- with which you have been called. Now, notice, you might have, it might have seemed redundant that he says the, the calling by which you have been called. Um, Paul says that we're to walk in a way that is really worthy of A worthy response to what God has been calling us into. Now, we live in what some people call a post-vocational age. And that means that we tend as a culture to not have any sense, really, of calling anymore. For many, we think along these lines. You know, we find a job, a way to pay the bills. We might even have a career, but a calling? I mean, isn't that for like pastors and missionaries? Maybe for doctors, maybe for teachers. But don't the rest of us just get jobs? Paul's answer, no. A vocation, it comes from the Latin word vocatio. It means a a call from God. And the call really is from God. It's his voice that we're responding to, call and response. In his book, The Pastor Eugene Peterson talks about this moment when he began to really understand what his vocation was. Here's what he writes. I had been employed by the church, West Park Presbyterian in New York City, Now he was a pretty young man at this time, to supervise a group of young adults on Friday nights, about 30 of them. They were all from someplace else, most of them artists who had come to the city in which they hoped to find affirmation and opportunity as artists. Most of them were dancers and singers, two were poets, there was one sculptor. All of them had menial jobs. Some were secretaries, some waiters and waitresses, one drove a taxi, another stole shoes at Brooks Brothers, but they were all serious artists. I didn't know how accomplished they were in their art, but I soon realized that whatever they had to do to pay rent, none of them was defined by his or her job. They were artists. Whether anyone else saw them as artists and regardless if anyone would would ever pay them to be artists, artist was not a job. It was a way of life, a vocation. Your calling and mine is like these artists. Irrespective of how they got paid or whether they're even recognized by others, your calling and mine is a response to God's invitation. His invitation to life on his terms. It's about being restored, fully human and fully alive, brought into right relationship with God through Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and then being open to living for his glory, walking in a way that reflects God's priorities and character. Notice, too, in this case, no one can ever take away your calling if your calling is to be God's beloved. You can never lose it. doesn't matter what your job is, whether you're paid for or not paid for what you do on a regular basis, your call remains the same, to live with and for Jesus, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you've been called. This matters for us, See? You might be working a menial job right now. Or you might not even have a job and you're looking for one. So you might not feel like you're living out your calling. Guess what? This is good news. Your job is not equal to your calling. And thank God for that. Even my job as a pastor, it's a great job. I love this church. But it's not enough to actually encompass what my calling is. My calling is to Christ, to follow him, and that to use whatever gifts and talents and experiences he's given me to bring him glory. It doesn't matter what my job is, that's my calling. One scholar says it well, jobs aren't big enough for people. I don't think they were ever meant to be. See, if you equate your job with your calling, then there's going to be days where you doubt that you're called at all. The days when your job is painful or difficult. Is this really what I'm called to? Why is this so hard, so disappointing? Isn't this my calling? And you'll wonder if you've missed your calling on those days. And worst of all, if you equate your job with your calling, you will constantly be dissatisfied with God, the one who called you. Why why would you be dissatisfied? This is why. Because you will fall prey to seeing your job as the source of satisfaction or fulfillment, rather than the God whose voice you're responding to, the one who called you to himself. I hope you see that distinction. I hope it's helpful for some of you. Because it says you don't need to change jobs to live out your calling. Well, you're free to. You can, but you don't have to. Your calling isn't abolished because your job isn't exactly what you feel like you want to be doing at the moment. Be who and what you are. Do whatever you do to bring glory to him, whatever job you're in. And as we read, our response to the call of God has a very particular shape to it, a specific way of living, a particular kind of walk. See, Paul uses the word walk, and it's a rich metaphor that he brings from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, that's how your way of life or pattern of behavior was described. It was your walk with God. Your way of life, it's the sum total of all our patterns or behaviors and attitudes and the habits that we've formed. Now, the NIV translates the word walk with live, and that's accurate and true. It's how we live. But I like the metaphor of walking, too. I think it it has something that's helpful for us. You see, I injured my knee, this one, about three years ago, kind of a silly accident. I bumped my knee into an amp, and then it really hurt, and I started limping, and guess what? found out that's a really bad idea because you form a habit of limping. And this leg started to shrink. The muscle was atrophied. And fortunately, I went to my physio and he said, Dave, you just need to walk properly again. And the muscle began to rebuild. Within a month, it was back into line. And the pain was actually subsiding. See, there's a way of walking that we were designed for, a way of truly being human, the way that God intended for us. We're saved not just to one day be in God's perfect presence, although salvation wonderfully includes that. We are saved to become who God made us to be, his beloved children, and that's living in love, walking in a way that is God-centered and other-oriented, to live with an openness to God and an integrity before others. See, my limp needed to be corrected. My leg muscle would have continued to shrink and grow weaker and weaker, There's a way of walking that fits your calling, that we're made for, saved to walk in. The rest of the letter is actually about defining that, and it starts that definition in verses 2 and 3. So let's read that again. Be completely, not on some days, uh, not occasionally, not with part of your life. This is a big word. Be completely humble and gentle. In 2 Corinthians Paul describes Jesus in those terms. He is gentle. He's gentle with us, and I'm so glad for it. But he calls us to be gentle with others too. Be humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Anything other than that, Paul says, that humble, gentle, patient, willing to endure with the failures of others, anything other or less than that, is a crippling limp. And now, if you haven't noticed, we at Summit Drive are a diverse community. On last count, which was years ago, and so it's probably more than that now, there was at least 37 different nations um, that we, that we kind of represent as a church. Man, isn't that a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like? Where before the throne of God, we read in Revelation 5, 9, there will be people made up from every tribe and language and people and nation... And we also have people from every sector of society in terms of the work world. We would be what sociologists call a mixed economy community. And we have people from a wide range of denominational backgrounds too. Uh, Yes, we're a Baptist church. And that means we have distinct elements of how we structure our governance. Or we might emphasize some elements of theology different than other denominations. But at heart, we're striving to major on the majors and not on the minors. We're a gospel-centered church, you might say, which means that we're God-centered. What this adds up to is that as we keep growing closer to one another in this church community, you will be rubbing shoulders with people who are not like you in many ways, and I want to say that's a good thing because our unity doesn't obliterate our differences as well. What it means is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one hope that you were called to, is what binds us together. It's what we share in common. And when the world sees a people who are so different that we can be so close, can work together, essentially when what they see is real love in action, they will see that we are formed not as a sociological entity, but as a work of God. Jesus says that the mark of a true disciple of Jesus is love for one another. We are unity, our closeness, our togetherness. We are a work of God. In fact, Paul said that in Ephesians 2 verse 10. He says, we are God's handiwork. Could be translated, we are his accomplishment. We are what God did together, brought into this community. Here's our take home from this. In such a diverse community as this, we will disagree with one another at times. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, For that very obvious (laughs) point. We will disagree with each other at times, but we are called. This is the walking in a manner worthy of our calling. We're called to respond with patient, humble, gentle, and tolerating love to reflect the very character of Jesus. And we will need God's grace to do that. Because even in that, we will fail at times. And yet God can restore us and forgive us, but he is bringing us back in line to get rid of that limp. And this is key. The difference we find in each other is actually a means of deepening and maturing us. When we work alongside of those who are different, it becomes a must to let the Holy Spirit generate these Christ-like qualities in us because we won't generate them on our own. Believe me that. So let's pause and just invite you to ask yourself, would my family and friends and coworkers, those who observe my life in all its ups and downs, would they describe me as a person who is, by God's grace, on the trajectory of becoming more humble, more gentle, patient, even tolerant of others' failures and foibles? Like, am I quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry? Or maybe this is the even more important question for you this morning. Do you want to be on that trajectory? To be more le- lined up with your calling? By the grace of God to grow in maturity and humility, gentleness, and patience, Because when we put our trust in Jesus, when we open ourselves and ask the Spirit to do that work in us, he will. I don't want to be the same man today, this time next year. I want to be a different kind of man this time next year. I hope you can see that in me, that this time next year, I'm more reflective of this, because that's the trajectory I want to be on. How about you? Let's uh, see the next part of what it means to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68 here, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Then he has this parenthetical remark, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Now here Paul is quoting Psalm 68 to speak of how Christ reigns as king of the whole show. And he's the one who gives gifts out to his people. And one of those gifts, he says, includes leaders within the church. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Paul's first point, Jesus gives gifts to everyone. That's what we saw in part two of our study. But let's focus on what Paul says in this passage. He says one of those gifts that Christ gives is people. Uh, There are certain roles that he names here, and it says that their role is to, to equip God's people for works of service. What will the result be? That we are built up that we come to maturity in Christ, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. All are gifted, Paul says. But some have a specific role of equipping the community to, to faithfully mature and grow in our ability to serve others well. Here's our main take home from this. And it's really, it's the point of the whole series that we've been doing in some ways. The work of those who have been called uh, in a specific way, like a pastor teacher, it's not to be the minister, at Summit Drive. You are. Uh, Esther Garretts was giving an announcement uh, a few weeks ago that they needed more female leaders for uh, youth ministry. And she said, I became a youth minister. and And then she stopped and went, well, not really. And then I said, yes, Esther. Yes, Esther. Yes, you are. And yes, that's what we're calling people into. As a youth worker, you are a minister of the gospel. That's the calling by which you've been called is to use whatever gifts God has given you to serve King Jesus and to build up his body, his beloved, his bride, the church. Now, the work of those given us, uh, like myself in a pastor-teacher role, is to equip people to grow in maturity and into your calling. Now, here's a few ways that we're trying to do this. Our Sunday services are meant to be an announcement and celebration of all that God has done for us in Christ through the power of his spirit. So really, it's worshiping God. Every single thing that we're trying to do here this morning is just to point our hearts Godward and to say, thank you, we love you. That is our primary purpose for gathering on a Sunday morning. That's what we're doing here. But there's other things that come along with it as well. We teach from the Bible every week, and that should lead us to marvel at God's goodness and respond in worship. But it also instructs us, I hope, in the way of Jesus so that we could be equipped to be gospel livers in the real world. See, one of our goals on Sunday sermons, what we're doing right now, is to equip our community for a life of ministry wherever God has placed you. For example, even our God question series that we did this fall, I know I was speaking mostly to people who are not believers. Uh, we were trying to reach out and, and share the good news of the gospel with people who don't yet know Jesus. And uh, that was a good and worthy goal, but you had to know that there was a subtext under all of that too, was I want to equip our people here at Summit to know how to answer these big questions so that when you're gossiping the gospel at your workplace or around coffee with your friends or in the neighborhood and they ask you a question about your Christian faith, you're actually equipped to answer those questions. A number of you have asked me for manuscripts of those sermons. Why? So you could learn them. You could learn the arguments. You could internalize them so that when your friends ask you questions, you're well prepared. I love that. That's part of what we're trying to do here. But, you know, our our life groups are also designed to help build each other up in love. Time to listen to each other, to pray for each other to listen to God's word for us through the scriptures. We make a big deal of life groups here because it's a key practice to pushing each other into just deeper commitment to Christ and greater maturity with each other. But third, we also want to give specific training times as well. Uh, Those who are going on missions trips, you might not know it right now, but there's probably somewhere around 40 to 50 to 60 people meeting downstairs right now doing missions training. They're learning what the biblical basis of missions is, they are learning um, how to go with sensitivity into the host cultures and to build a sense of unity as a team. You know, when our Northwest Territories tree team came back from their first experience up north in Fort Providence last summer, uh, the, the ladies who were running the ministry that they were working with, they said, we've never had a team like this before. We've never seen those who were so able to minister well to these kids. What? Why? And Perry Penny instantly said, it's because we We required them to do an eight-week mission training course where they're being equipped to understand what they're doing and how to live that out. And so thanks to Colton and to Megan who developed that course and taught it last year and those who are teaching it this year, again, that's happening right as we speak, equipping people for the ministry they're called to. Uh, In March, we're going to be running a course on Tuesday nights, basic methods for studying the Bible. There's going to be more uh, information coming up uh, in the coming month about that. You can sign up and learn to read your Bible well. You know, as I mentioned, we're doing this sanctuary course starting uh, February 12th here. Bob and Ruth Verbray are going to use their own uh, experience as well to facilitate this group They've had their own experiences, and they want to share that and resource us as a church, help us to grow, to to love each other well in terms of mental wellness. But we have to understand this too. All the courses that we're doing and that we're going to be offering for you, they're not just for head knowledge. It's not just so that you understand more, although I want to say we lead with understanding. We don't go into things without having first grasped the ideas. God has called us to love him with our minds as well. But if all we're doing is filling our heads, then we're wasting our time. Because the training, the equipping we're doing is so that we can do works of service. It's, It's equipping for ministry, both to the rest of the Christian community, but to those in our world who need to know of Jesus too. Now notice the outcome for the community of faith that is growing in Christ. Here's what Paul says next in verse 14. What will happen? This. Then you will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and, uh, and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, not that, but this. Ready? Speaking the truth in love, we will grow up to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The goal, no longer infants. In your thinking, you're not going to be swayed here and there by every teaching that comes along. Uh John Stott was a well-known biblical scholar and pastor Uh, He passed away just a few years ago, actually, and he cared deeply about training Christian leaders so that we could lead church as well, and and he started a a ministry called the Langham Partnership, where he would train pastors and leaders from the majority world, where the church was exploding, and he would say, they need to get the best education possible, so he'll send them to Oxford, send them to McMaster, send them to St. Andrews, send them to just the best theological schools in the world, and so that they can go back to their countries and help train pastors for depth now chris wright is a old testament scholar and this is what he says about this ministry he now leads the langham partnership he says john stott's great slogan was that the problem with the church all over the world and notice he's not just talking about majority world church all over the world here too was growth without depth That is, he could see that the church was growing phenomenally in some places in evangelism and numbers, but without matching depth of discipling, spiritual and moral transformation, and good pastoral leadership. Without that growth and maturity, the church is very vulnerable to false teachings, cults, syncretism, and that means kind of a blending of Christianity with other religions, and the predatory scourge of the prosperity gospel, in quotes, because it's not the gospel at all. It's a false teaching that somehow we can use God to gain health and wealth in this life. The Apostle Paul, he goes on, pleaded with his churches to grow up in Christ. True that. So if you're, if you're new here to Summit, you might wonder, why do we make so much of the Bible in all we do? This is why. It's to keep pushing each other to spend time in prayer, and with God, listening to his voice through the scriptures to be encouraged in life groups. It's so that we grow up. Now, if you sign on to life, real life in Christ, you're signing on to a life of being molded and shaped and moved to actually reflect Jesus' own character. You'll be moved to have wisdom from God in how to respond to various situations because you've studied the scriptures in community, and been trained to live a life that is worthy of your calling. That's at least my hope. That's my prayer for us as a church, that we too would grow up in Christ, me along with all of you as well. A pastor friend of mine had a great phrase. He said, God doesn't raise spoiled kids. I like that. I think that's true. And so going back to what we just read here about not being infants, uh, so we're not a social club where anything goes. Anything but. We're the community of Christ, the people of God, the fellowship of the redeemed. Everyone is welcome to join, but it's always through the same narrow gate as Jesus describes it. It is through himself, through repentance, and that's a beautiful word. I love that word because it means I'm no longer putting my allegiance in something other than Jesus. It's not me at the center anymore. It's actually my allegiance is to King Jesus and him alone, and it's him at the center now. Repentance, a beautiful word. It's a turning from me to you, God. That's the basis of our community. All are welcome. All come in the same way. All are now called to live a life worthy of your calling, to respond in trusting obedience. All are gifted. All are a gift to the church. You are a gift to the church. I don't know if you know that, but you are. And if you don't use you... For the sake of everyone else, the church is weaker and poorer because of it. You are a gift to God's church. And all, all of us will be changed and deepened and matured in the process. So notice again from verse 16, from him, like from Jesus, it's all rooted in him. From him, Jesus, the whole body Is joined together and held by every supporting ligament, it grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You are called. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're part of the one people of God. And that means you're gifted. And that means that you need to be equipped. Why? To be a gift to others to fully engage in God's plan to build up the church. But you have to hear this. This happens both by contributing to the maturity of the body of Christ and it's building up within kind of who we are as the community, but it also means getting on board with God's mission in our city and beyond. It's loving those who are on the margins of our society and bringing them to the center of our community. And it's announcing however God opens the doors to That through faith in Jesus, there is new life, full life, forgiveness, healing, hope. And to be willing to share that with anyone who asks for the hope that we have. Now, to do that, to engage with each other and the world in that way, it takes the same posture that God had toward us. And that can best be summed up, I think, in the word hospitality. And you're thinking, hospitality... Doesn't that mean having people over for lunch or tea? Uh, Not exactly, actually. Uh, That word has been hijacked in our thinking. It is not hanging out with people I like and who like me and who are a lot like me. Uh, Matt Chandler, I think, puts it well in his little book, Take Heart. He says, hospitality is opening my life and giving loving welcome to those outside my regular circle of so if your life isn't open beyond your regular circle of friends, you're not participating in hospitality yet. Okay, It means open to those who are not already part of your circle. It means moving toward, not away from, those who are strangers. And that takes courage. Yeah, it does. It means being willing to have conversations with someone who thinks differently than I do. Maybe even comes to different conclusions on important topics. Are you friends with people who think really different politically than you? Isn't that a good question? Hospitality says we should be open to those who are different than us, friends with them even, willing to work alongside of, call into relationship, discuss, be hospitable. It's staying open and loving. And by God's grace, God uses those connections for his glory. So by his grace, look for opportunities to hospitality this week. Pay attention to those who are strangers, maybe in your midst. God's already brought you into their circle, someone you work with. Be open to how you can build a bridge, build a connection, be an encouragement, be an agent of God's love toward them. So wherever you go, you can be hospitable. Even if you're the guest in a situation, you can be that person who walks into the room and says, I want to be open to you. I want to, be, I want to connect with others. I want to ask good questions. Have a posture that desires to know those around me. And as we come to the table now, and I'm going to invite those who are serving with me, I want us to see that this is why hospitality is so key. It's because hospitality is how God has treated us. See, there may be people who God has brought across your path that you most naturally would want to move away from. But here's the thing. That's exactly the person that Jesus moves toward. In fact, God moved toward me and you when we were very much not like him. I'm a sinner. I'm the exact opposite of what Jesus is like, and yet he's moving toward me. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God moves toward us, and this table is a representation of exactly that, how he moved toward us in history. Jesus, God the Son, let his life break. He died a sinner's death in my place and in yours, though he had done nothing wrong to restore us to relationship with God. And so we come to the table and we celebrate how God has been hospitable to call us home to himself And now he sends us out from this table to be hospitable to others, to those around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that this table is like a table in any home. It's representative of belonging, of the place where I'm family. We thank you that you welcome us as sons and daughters when we put our trust in you. And then you call us to live in relationship as brother and sister in Christ to represent that unity that you've given us. So Lord, we give you thanks today for doing everything necessary to save us, to win us. We want to celebrate what you've done today. We want to say thank you.